Would you pray with me? Guide our listening and our speaking, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Throughout the season of Epiphany, we're looking at moments where we glimpse the divine and the impact that it has on our everyday lives. Today, our scripture lesson comes from the book of Exodus, where Moses has some big decisions to make. He has already had more than enough false starts and frustrations and failure, and he lacks clarity. And he asks God, but how will I know that you are with me? Hear these words from Exodus chapter 33, beginning at the 12th verse. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. The Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord commanded, continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first church I served after we moved to Virginia was a small rural church in Greene County, just north of Charlottesville. And the very first week I was there, the Commonwealth of Virginia executed 23-year-old Stephen Roach for the murder of 70-year-old Marianne Hughes. 
Marianne Hughes had been a member of our church and four generations of her family are still. Stephen Roach was 17 years old and a neighbor of Mrs. Hughes. She had been like a grandmother to him and it was beyond comprehension. The day he walked next door, opened the door, shot her, took $60 in cash, her credit card, her car keys, and drove away. Stephen Roach would be only the second person in Virginia to be sentenced to death as a minor. And as you can imagine, the execution was highly publicized and highly controversial. And I'm sure you can imagine the agony that both the first death and now the second death caused in our community. As I sat one Sunday afternoon with Mrs. Hughes' daughter, now the matriarch of the family, she said something I'll never forget. For a long time, she said, I prayed for understanding. I wanted to be able to see things clearly, to make decisions on this. It never came. Instead, I've been granted moments when I have felt held by God. Now I pray for that so I can keep moving. There is perhaps no more beautiful and comforting image in scripture than the image of the cleft of the rock, the place where we are held by God when the world about us is too much, when what we're about to see or experience is too powerful for us, more than we can handle. And we're drawn to this image for its comfort. And yet the image of being held and hidden in the cleft of the rock also makes us a little uncomfortable. We fear it will be used as a form of escape or denial or cover-up. We want to know things. We're a tradition based on revelation, on uncovering, not on covering up. We don't want to lead a sheltered life. We don't want to be kept in the dark. We want to see things clearly. The Bible tells us that this kind of full disclosure is precisely what Moses sought when he asked to know God's name and see God's face. And the Bible tells us that this is precisely what Moses did not get. In order to understand this passage of Moses being placed in the cleft of the rock, we need to understand how it is placed in the book of Exodus. This encounter that Moses has with God sits right between the two great revelations in Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, before today's passage, Starting about chapter 20, Moses meets God on Mount Sinai. He's given the great revelation of the Ten Commandments and a whole list of communal instructions to help this new nation move toward freedom. Unfortunately, Moses stays too long on the mountain. The people get restless and take up with other gods. 
He comes down just in time to see the golden calf and in a fit of rage smashes the tablets. And then Moses is left to figure out what to do, both with an angry God and with an angry people. And it looks as if all bets on a new life are off. And on the other side of today's passage, we're told about a second giving of the law to Moses. It turns out God and Moses meet again on Mount Sinai. And lo and behold, a new set of tablets is consecrated and the covenant is renewed. Now, how did this happen? How did God and Moses get from A to B? In between these two great moments, we have the cleft of the rock. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai the first time and sees that the people had given themselves to other gods, it looks as if everything he had been asked to do was a failure. God tells him to keep going. Moses doesn't think it's possible. Twice in this passage, God verbally promises to accompany Moses on the rest of the journey, and twice Moses doesn't believe it. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of with Moses. I can only imagine Moses' exhaustion and discouragement and fear. Moses needs more than a promise from God, even from God. And so he asks for a vision. He asks to see who God really is so that he can be assured of God's presence. He isn't granted it. Instead, he's placed in an opening in a rock and covered with God's hand so that he sees only a glimpse of the backside of the divine. Now, why in the world would the same God who trusted Moses with the liberation of a nation and the gift of the law, hide him away in a rock and cover him from seeing clearly. Why doesn't God grant Moses the vision he asked for? And yet, isn't this the nature of any true love? At times, as parents, we help our children to see things as we see them to see the truth of the situation and to see it clearly. And at other times, we only want to shelter them, to protect them, to let them experience life in little bites instead of huge gulps. Sometimes, as friends, we are painfully honest with one another. We reveal things to each other and we act to open up each other's eyes and their hearts and their vision. We set them straight for their own good. And at other times, especially when life is overwhelming, we simply hold them close and cover them with our hands and assure them that we will never leave. Moses was in a state of crisis. The people he had been asked to lead had abandoned the dream of a new life with God, and the God who had been abandoned was rip-roaring mad. 
Moses was not only trying to figure out how to move forward, but actually whether to move forward at all. He pleads with God. He pleads with the people. He wants understanding. Instead, he gets a physical experience of being sheltered by God in a rock. Many of us know, especially now, what it's like to have to start life over again, to start moving again after a great loss or injustice or circumstances beyond our control that are just plain crazy-making. I think you and I understand Moses more than we think. He needed to know for sure that God was going with him, and he had God's protection if he was going to start this whole thing all over again. And I think God knew that Moses needed more than a vision. He needed an experience. Garrison Keillor, who is one of my favorite storytellers, tells the following story from Lake Wobegon, and every single year, About this time, I think about it. I like to think of it as the storm child. He writes, After sixth grade, I left Sunnyvale and rode the bus into Lake Wobegon High in town where Mr. Detman was principal, a man who looked as if wild dogs were after him and a giant icicle hung over his head. Worry ate at Mr. Detman. He yelled at us when we ran downstairs, believing we would fall and break our necks and die on the landing. He imagined pupils choking on food and wouldn't allow meat in the lunchroom unless it was ground up. And he had a special fear for winter that a blizzard would sweep in and school buses be marooned on the roads and children perish. So in October, he announced that each pupil who lived in the country would be assigned to a storm home in town. If a blizzard struck during school, we'd go to our storm home. Mine was the Clocals. An old couple who lived in a little green cottage by the lake, she kept a rock garden on the lakeside with terraces of alyssum, pansies, petunias, moss roses, rising up out of a statue of the Blessed Virgin, seated and around her, a bed of marigolds. It looked like a home of a kindly old couple, that the children lost in the forest suddenly came upon in a clearing and knew that they were lucky to be in a story with a happy ending. That's how I felt about the Clocals after I got their name on a slip of paper and walked by their house and inspected it. Though my parents might have wondered about my my assignment had they known. But I imagined that the Clocals had personally chosen me as their storm child because they liked me. Him, they had told Mr. Detman, in the event of a blizzard, we want that boy 
the skinny one with the thick glasses. No blizzard came during the school hours that year. All snowstorms were convenient evening or weekend ones, and I never got to stay with the cloakals. But they were often in my thoughts, and they grew large in my imagination. My storm home. Blizzards aren't the only storms, and not the worst by any means. I would imagine worse things. And if the worst should come, I could go to the cloakals and knock on the door. Hello, I'd say. I'm your storm child. Oh, I know, she'd say. I've been wondering when you'd come. Oh, it's so good to see you. How would you like some hot chocolate and an oatmeal cookie? We'd sit at the table. Looks like this storm is going to last a while. Yes, I'd say. Terrible storm. They say it's going to get worse before it stops. I just pray for anyone who's out in this. Yes. I'd say. But we're so glad to have you. I can't tell you. Carl, come down. See who's here. Is it the storm child? Yes, himself in the flesh. The nature of God's love for us is such that at times it opens up our mind and our world and it gives us understanding and broadens our vision. And at other times, it holds us close and shelters us from the storm. We're promised not so much more vision as rest and safety as if we were placed gently in the cleft of a rock and covered with God's hand. The great moment of revelation for Moses was not seeing a snippet of God's backside. The true revelation was the experience of God's presence in the rock. It was this experience that allowed Moses to start over. It was this experience that allowed him to catch his prophetic breath and finish the hard work of freedom. As Marianne Hughes' daughter said so clearly, I have prayed for understanding, and it never came. Instead, I've been granted moments when I have felt held by God. Now I pray for that so that I can keep moving. At various times in our lives, you and I will be invited to take shelter, God's shelter, to accept a holy covering, not out of denial or out of escape, but out of deep faith that God's very concern is our very good. And if you and I can accept it, then the experience will become our revelation, and the revelation will become our strength. Amen.